church. And welcome to our neighbors. I'm very glad to be with you. You know, our, our tolerance for caring about stuff is actually pretty low. Um, it, it takes a bit, it takes a lot for there to be something that occurs for us to care about. And somebody explained this to me um, in using a word picture, and what they used was three chairs. And I thought about their picture, three chairs, and thought, you know, that, that kind of makes sense, but um, I think I'd rather use three subway cars. And just want illustrate, to illustrate the point real quick. So in order for us to care about something, our, our care is directly correlated to where we sit in what subway car. If there's three subway cars and something happens in the first subway car, there's some kind of event, and it happens to everybody in that first car, Everybody in that first car cares about what happened in that first car, right? So if a, if a gunman shows up and a police officer arrests them down and that happens in the first subway car, everybody is super excited about, in one way or another, what happened in that car. The, the people in the first car then will travel to the people in the second car to tell them about what occurred. And the people in the second car... They'll care about what happened because that was really, really close to me and that happened to somebody like they just, it was one door away, two doors away from what was going on and that could have been me. A stray bullet could have affected me like I was really close to that action and they will care a little bit more if somebody from the first car comes to the second car to tell them what happened. But because of the nature of a subway car, people in the first car can't travel to the people in the third car. So the people in the second car can travel to the people in the third car. So, people in the first car care a lot. People in the second car care a little bit because something could have happened to them. People in the third car who are hearing about what happened to the people in the first car from what happened, or by people in the second car that it didn't happen to, they don't actually care very much. Like, it's interesting. It's mildly entertaining, maybe. But, like, it doesn't actually affect my life, right? And I'm, I'm not even hearing it from somebody that it happened to. I'm hearing it from somebody that it happened, or somebody who heard about something it happened to. And so I don't know that I really trust it, right? Our tolerance for caring about things is actually pretty high. It has to be something that happened to me or happened to somebody that I know. Otherwise, I don't know. It's definitely not going to change how I live my life, right? Um, we, see this, uh, we see this principle play out throughout the scripture, actually, in a number of different ways. And perhaps the, uh, the, the thing that I can bring it home to the most is about how, how we parent our children. Um, because we have had experiences, we have had things that happen to us that we're trying to convey to our children in the second car. And really, the older that we get, we begin to think about, okay, how are the, my children, who I conveyed to in the second car, how are they going to teach their children, and will my grandchildren care at all about what happened to me? It takes a very short amount of time for people not to care about what happens in your life. And the stories that get told, sometimes the details begin to get blurry. The details begin to get fuzzy and, and, and the details begin to um, get out of order. Have you ever tried to tell a story and you get about halfway through and you realize, oh, I, I, I forgot to say that one thing. Um, I probably have enough distance from it now, but uh, two Thursdays ago was just a crazy day for me. Um, I, I had a, a, a list of things that I needed to get done that filled up my whole day. And it started with me needing to get a lawnmower across town before and get back here to have a meeting at 9 a.m. So I had to get the lawnmower across town and get back here by 9 a.m., which isn't hard because I had to get the kids to school at 7.30. But, so I had all this stuff that I had to get home. I did not get the lawnmower across town until 2.30 because of a whole bunch of series of circumstances. So everything I planned to happen that day didn't happen. And by the end of that day, I end up sitting in, in my friend's living room and uh, we're, we're chatting about everything that's going on, and I'm trying to tell him everything that happened in my day, because it was an action-packed day. And I keep having to be like, oh, wait, but it, th you have to understand this other thing that happened first. You have to understand this other thing that happened first. And he's in the second car going, I, uh, cool, Mike. I'm sorry your day was so rough. And I can guarantee you it did not impact his life that he's going to go and tell anybody else about what happened on my Thursday, right? Because it has a very low tolerance for people to care about what goes on. All right? I say all that to say this. We're going to get a lot of details about a story that doesn't appear to be connected to us today. 
these chapters in Scripture that we're going to cover today, and it's our last, our last uh, conversation about the book of Daniel for a while, <laughs> for a couple of minutes anyway. Our last conversation is, is going to be on chapters 11 and 12, and there are no chapters in the Bible like these two. These two are unique, um, and there, there are no chapters in the Bible that include the amount of detail about what is going to happen in the future as the text was written. There is no prophecy like this. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's overwhelming. Um, and I, I am, I'm concerned that we're going to go two or three hours this morning. I'm going to endeavor not to do that um, because I know that you guys are in the third car, right? I have spent some time with Daniel this week, so I have learned in the second car what happened to Daniel in the first car, and now you're hearing it from the guy it didn't happen to, Right? And so I'm aware that that's where we are, but I'm going to ask you, please, please, to, to try and make some connections, maybe come into the second car with me as we explore this together, okay? Can we do that together this morning? We're going to need help, and we're going to need God to guide us and give us what we need for this day. So would you um, bow your hearts together with me, and let's pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. It's going to be on page 940, 940 here in the blue Bibles that are in the room here. Um, otherwise, navigate to Daniel chapter 11. And we've been in a series that we've called How Long? And really wrestling with the idea of if God is so good and God is in control, why does it feel like our world is on fire? And we've been looking at... Uh, the life of Daniel through our series called Faith Under Fire. We looked at his biography, and now we've been looking in this series at a, a series of dreams and visions that came over the course of his long life. He's probably 80, maybe 90 years old at the time. Excuse me, at the time that um, that this that these visions are coming to him. Um, but I but we, we covered a little bit last week. Uh, the end of chapter 10, and 10, 11, and 12 all tell the same story. 10, 11, and 12 all hang together, and so to kind of get us into the right mood, to get us into the right setting, I'd like for us to read Daniel chapter 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 18, just going to read the end of chapter 10, and I'm going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 11 to get our setting and get our bearings of what's going on. Chapter uh, 10, verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not, his but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So we'll pause. Remember, in our conversation last week, and you can catch up on, on the YouTube channel, our conversation last week dealt with Daniel, who was praying and fasting for three weeks as uh, he saw visions that really disturbed him, and he understood them. <laughs> Maybe knowing the mind of God would be more disturbing to us than just kind of being able to live in ignorance and, and walk through our lives. So Daniel had a vision, he understood it, and he we wept and mourned and fasted for three weeks. And now an angel, an angelic being, a heaven 
heavenly being. I, uh, I tried to argue last week that it was actually Jesus, pre-incarnate, before Christmas time, shows up to strengthen him and to encourage him and to tell him, here's what's coming up in the books. So God has history written down before it happens. And Jesus shows up to tell Daniel, here's what's going to happen. You're, you're now in Persia. I'm, uh, he says, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. It's an interesting, like, that's a really interesting paragraph. And the first time I read it, I thought, did we zap back in time? Are we going backwards into the time of Darius? But the, the heavenly being is saying to Daniel, I strengthened Michael in the first year of Darius. There was something going on, and I strengthened Michael, who was the archangel, the guardian angel over Israel. I strengthened him in the first year of Darius. Um, We know in history, the first year of Darius is when the decree was made for the the Israelite people to go back into Jerusalem. So they'd been put into timeout, and in that year, they were allowed to begin to go back to rebuild things. So there's spiritual components going on to what's happening on the world stage. And he says... Persia is going to fall. There are going to be four more rulers. They're going to fall. Greece is going to show up. There's going to be a mighty ruler that takes over Greece. We've learned about Alexander the Great in this series. He shows up, and when he dies, his kingdom doesn't go to his posterity. His kingdom doesn't go to his sons. He has two sons. His kingdom doesn't go to them. They're killed, and it goes to his four leading generals, and they divide up the kingdom of Greece, this, this first almost global world power, gets divided into four sections, um, two of which we're going to focus on a lot today. But all of this is written down hundreds of years before it occurs. Daniel receives these visions, Daniel receives this revelation from this heavenly being hundreds of years before it actually occurs. For us, it's history. We're going to take some time together to lay open the history book this morning and to look at what this prophecy said and what happened in history, and we're going to see that they match up uh, significantly well. But for Daniel, it was all prophecy. Nothing had happened that was being written down. He had no idea if any of this was true, and he was, going to, he was at the end of his life, and he's going to figure out what he's going to do with this information. And that'll be... Um, our conclusion this morning. But first, we've got to get there. Um, for the rest of chapter 11, uh, we have a pretty good historical account of the prophecy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to read a chunk. I'm going to read three different chunks of the text here in chapter 11. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history, about what we have. I'm not going to give you all the names and details because I know we're in the third car. Um, But if this is the kind of thing that you're interested in, if you want to read about the kingdom of Greece and we get into some of the the foundations of the Roman Empire, like it is fascinating if you're into history, but if you're in the third car and you just came on a Sunday morning and you want to be encouraged, like I want to get us there too. So let's read the text and I'll give you a little bit of history. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not re- retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who followed her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, shall one or one shall rise, arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal e- images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and shall carry the war as far as his fortress. I'll pause there. So the kingdom of Greece is divided into four, but really it's divided into two main sections. So this is a a map of the kingdom of Greece at the time. Um, You've got a little bit of purple and a little bit of yellow up at the top. They are, uh, are um, really not 
we're not going to talk much about them at all. But you've got the green there is the northern kingdom, and that's uh, ruled by uh, a, a general whose name was Seleucius. And so they call that the Seleucid kingdom, the Seleucid dynasty. And in the south uh, was given to a general called Ptolemy. There's a P at the beginning of his name, Ptolemy. Um, so they call that the Ptolemaic kingdom. So you've got north and south. There's going to be wars and conflicts between north and south. Uh, and they were two of Alexander's generals. Ptolemy, the king in the south, gave his daughter Bernice to make an alliance with the king in the north, Antiochus II. Yes. The, one more thing about ancient history. Um, for us, uh, we had six children, and it was a, a task for us to think of names. We worked really, really hard to come up with names. And there was a whole list of criteria of, of they can't all have the same first letter and all that kind of stuff. And we worked really hard for all of our kids to have a unique name, to bless them with this. In, in, in ancient history, they're just like, what was your dad's name? Yeah, that works for you too. So all of these people actually end up having the same name. And it gets like really complicated. So I'm, gonna, I'm trying to, to digest some of this stuff. Um, and, and make it a little bit easier for us to read. But Ptolemy II gives his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II in the north um, as an offering uh, or as, as, as a peace treaty. They want, to, they want to get married. But the problem was that Antiochus II, the northern king's wife, didn't want that marriage to go well. So she, her name was Laodis, she poisoned both of them. So they both died. So even though this king of the south tried to, tried to offer a peace agreement with the king of the north, it didn't work for him. He didn't get the strength because his daughter and her proposed husband both got killed. They both were, were assassinated by his first wife. So history is fun. <clears throat> then in that same year, even though he tried to make this treaty work, he actually ends up dying too. And his son, Bernice's brother, um, who becomes Ptolemy III, I'm really original, um, he takes revenge against the king of the north. So that's what's described here in the text. You've got a daughter offered as an alliance, but it doesn't hold. And then uh, one, how does the text describe it? And from a branch from her roots shall one arise in his place. So the daughter comes in, is supposed to be the peace alliance, and that doesn't work, but a branch from her roots. Her brother takes over the kingdom, and his sons end up waging war against the northern kingdom. Prophecy, history. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall, shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people, talking to Daniel, the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fall. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his old kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, and he shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon them. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. We'll pause there. So there's a continued conflict between north and south with, with heavy losses. Um, and the north, at this time in history, actually becomes the stronger of the two. The north becomes the, 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 the greater. They're able to build a bigger army. They're able to have more military success. Um, and the Jews are looking at the kingdom of the north. Uh, Daniel's people, the Israelites in Israel, are looking at the kingdom of the north going, that's the power. Like, and we're stuck here in the south. Um, Israel kind of falls in the middle of that, of that northern upreach of the orange section there. <clears throat> they say, look, like, it would actually be better for us to be ruled by the north because the guy in the south, he's, he's pretty weak. And so they have an uprising. There's 
uh, a revolt that's led out of Israel, and um, we know this in history as the Maccabean re re revolt. Um, the history of the Maccabees is all in there. They attempt to overthrow the southern rule, and there's a battle near Peneus in 198 BC, which is a fortified city, and it was the turning point for the war. Antiochus III um, secured northern control of Israel up until Rome takes over. So all of these things have been set in place. Um, it talks about there's a, an alliance that's, tries, that's tried to be made between the, the north and the south, and this is Cleopatra I. Now, you have heard of Cleopatra, but you've actually heard of Cleopatra VII. Remember, they all have the same name. But this is Cleopatra I, who's given to try and broker an alliance. But when Cleopatra gets to the other kingdom, she supports the king that she marries and not her dad. So he tries to broker this alliance to, to strengthen his position, but his daughter ends up turning on him, and so it's not to his advantage that he gave his daughter away in marriage, which is what the text says. Um, and Antiochus III was murdered by a mob at the end of his life. Like, he comes in and tries to do some, uh, do some sketchy stuff with some people's temple, and people get mad when you mess with their church, and so this, this military conqueror gets killed by an angry mob of peasants. So it says, he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Prophecy, history. One more section. We're almost, we're getting there. There's a lot, but you guys are doing great. I'm so proud of you. Uh, verse 20. <clears throat> then shall arise in the place of one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain a kingdom by flattery. <clears throat> Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat food shall break him. Eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So Antiochus III um, is succeeded by his son, Seleucius IV. Seleucius IV um, is kind of a, a financial guy. He, he sees things in terms of, of, of the, the, the economy. And so he's like, I'm going to get this kingdom back on track. I'm going to fix the economy. And so he goes around and collects all the taxes that he possibly can. He's like this massive tax collector because he's trying to repay this debt that they've got on the books. And so he goes around and tries to repay this debt, but he ends up being assassinated. So one who, uh, in verse 20, is an exactor of tribute shall be broken in a few days, neither in anger nor in battle. He's just assassinated because he, he doesn't come up with enough money. And then somebody else kind of sneaks in. They weasel their way in to the kingdom. Even though they're not of the royal family, they weasel their way in. And here we have Antiochus IV, who is somebody that we are familiar with. He has actually showed up before as the little horn in previous prophecies. Um, he is so arrogant, he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. He doesn't want to be called the fourth because he wants to be the greatest. So he doesn't call himself Antiochus the fourth. He calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've been in the Catholic Church, Epiphanes is going to sound kind of like Epiphany, the appearing, the manifestation. He says, I am Antiochus, the manifestation of God. I'm God incarnate. I'm the one who is appearing. So he's, uh, he's a little bit boastful. And he goes around and just starts plundering the countryside of his enemies. And so the, the, nobody's able to stop him. Nobody's able to get control of him. He, he, he's 
kind of cocky and just goes through and takes over everything. So people sit down and try to, try to deal with him. They sit down at the table, and you've got this political conversation that's happening around a table. Both sides are lying to one another, and neither one gets ahead. And they both come to conflict anyway. History and prophecy. Um, do we trust that God knows the news? I've, I've tried to move as quickly as I can. I feel like I'm already running out of time. But I've tried to go through, like, this is the most detailed prophecy in all of Scripture. We never get this much detail. And yet, when we take the details of this prophecy that were written hundreds of years before the fact, and we line it up with what actually ends up happening with a bunch of people that didn't give a rip about the Hebrews or about their scriptures and probably had no idea that these prophecies were written down, we see that they do exactly what God said they were going to do. History and prophecy. Do we trust that God knows the news? Or does our Twitter feed overwhelm us? Does our, our news feed feel like, uh, what are we going to do? Isn't God in control? Like, do we trust that God knew it before it happened? It was written in his book to begin with. Every election, we get worked up about what's going to happen. And rightly so, we need to be good citizens. And yet, do we trust that God knows the news? There's never been an election that God was surprised by. There's never been a coup that God was surprised by. There's never been a lying politician that God couldn't handle. Do we trust that God knows the news? Here's our big idea for the rest of the morning. We rest in Jesus, knowing that he stands above every cycle of evil. We rest in Jesus, knowing that he stands above every cycle of evil. That's kind of a, a weird way to put things, Michael. Why would you say it that way? The next paragraph here that we're going to study um, begins to shift. The facts of history don't begin to line up exactly in the same way that they have for the first. And so you can either look at that, and some scholars will, say, ah, obviously the prophecy here got off, and now, now it's not true. And so we can discount the whole thing because these parts don't line up. This didn't actually happen. And yet, sometimes... When we're looking through the time of history, we can begin to see double, and things aren't quite clear about who exactly it is that we're focusing on. Let's read it, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. In Daniel chapter 11, and verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his, in his train. But the news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So here we begin to see a little bit of a double vision where... Um, Antiochus Epiphanes did not invade and overtake Egypt, which is what's prophesied here. He did not show up, and actually when he decided that he was going to go invade Egypt, he got up to the border and saw the big army and saw another army come in and to intimidate him, and he just went home. And he actually didn't even go home. He went uh, not back to Jerusalem where he, was yeah, where he was ruling from. He went back east, and he got sick and died. 
just randomly, illness. Got sick and died. We've talked about that already. But the prophecy says that he's going to return back to his, his, his home. He's going to build a city. He's going to build his palatial tents in between the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the mountain of Jerusalem, which Antiochus didn't do. So what's happening here? First, let me say that God's perspective on history might shine the spotlight in different areas than we would. Antiochus Epiphanes, like, he wasn't a super big deal to anybody except the Jews. The whole, like, murdering 40,000 of them, like, he was a big deal to the Jews. But across world history, he wasn't super powerful. He was arrogant, he was cocky, but he didn't really have a lot going on. And yet God shines the spotlight on him because he's trying to illustrate something that's going to repeat in history over and over and over again. Um, we read together from Matthew chapter 24, we read the first eight verses. But in the next eight verses after that, Jesus actually talks about the abomination of, of desolation, the, the abomination that makes things desolate. And as we have read those, we've looked at Antiochus, Epiphanes, who, um, who went into Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on the altar and set up an idol of Zeus. So he desecrated the temple and put it out of commission for six years, and we go, that is an abomination that makes things desolate. And yet, in, when Jesus, after Antiochus Epiphanes, is talking about the things of the end, he refers to the abomination of desolation as a future event. Jesus saw the abomination as a future event relating to the end times. He's taking something that everybody who had been reading their Bible, all of the Hebrews that he was teaching, who would be familiar with Antiochus and the prophecy of Daniel, who, have, who would understand that we're looking for our Messiah because these things have happened, something big in world history has occurred, they would look at that and go, like, this thing has already happened. Jesus says, it's coming. And that makes me think in this section of the end of the prophecy, we begin to get double vision. We started by looking at Antiochus, but, but we're beginning to see that there are other leaders that are going to come after him. There are other leaders that are going to act in the same way. They're going to be arrogant, that are going to call themselves the manifestation of God and who are going to be cruel to God's people. This is a cycle of history that repeats and repeats itself. In fact, I, um, we had a communion celebration a couple of weeks ago, and I read from Daniel chapter 11, no, Daniel chapter 7, in our communion celebration, which is another, another prophecy. And as I was reading that, there was somebody there who hadn't been uh, in the sermon or hadn't been paying attention, I don't know. I'll say they hadn't been in the sermon. And they said, when you were reading those things about that guy, um, that prophecy, I thought you were talking about Hitler. Like, persecuting the Jews and being, and, and being um, uh, arrogant and all this kind of thing, wanting to take over the world. I thought you were talking about Hitler. I'm like, yeah, like, I understand. Like, we're talking, that prophecy is about Antiochus, but this is a pattern that repeats. There are rulers in history that, that arise up and want to uh, oppose God, and so they begin by attacking God's people. Anti-Semitism is a, a pattern that repeats in history, and as it increases, as pow powerful people begin to, to persecute Jewish people, God's chosen people, um, things just get worse. But we rest in Jesus knowing he stands above every cycle of evil. We worship Jesus, but this picture that we have, I think we're beginning to get a negative picture of Jesus. There's going to be a figure that comes who sets himself up to be God and yet actually stands for the opposite of everything Jesus stood for. Where God approaches humanity with compassion and self-sacrifice, this, this leader is going to show up and he's going to demand power and perfect submission and he's going to oppress and oppose people. We have echoes of what we would call perhaps an anti-Jesus, an anti-Christ. But we rest in Jesus knowing that he stands above every cycle of evil. As often as this cycle has repeated throughout history and will repeat until it comes to its final repetition, Jesus stands above it. Let's look at chapter 12. 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as, ne- such, as, yeah, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be written in the book of life, or shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So it says at the very end, at the conclusion of all of this, there's going to be a suffering of the people of God, of the Israelites, that has never before been. When we look at World War II and we look at the Holocaust, it will, not pale, it will pale in comparison to what is coming. And we begin to understand why Daniel grieved, why he was broken for weeks and asked God, why? How long? Suffering loosens our grip on defective life preservers. When we cling to something and we're asking it to save us and it can't, God, includes, God allows suffering to loosen our grip on it that we might cling to him. Our hope crystallizes when we agree with Yahweh and we seek him. And we see that his plan is resurrection. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep, many of those who are dead in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's resurrection in everyone's future, but their destination is undetermined. Remember that Jesus is the greatest force that shapes our world. Of all the wicked cycles that that burn across our land and across our earth, um, Jesus is the greatest force that shapes our world. And so we lament evil's devastation while we live in light of God's assured victory. And he says, all right, Daniel, I'm done. Shut the book. Seal it. It's finished. I've I've given you everything I'm going to give you. This is the end of the matter. Um, Close the book. Not that it's sealed in that nobody else can read it, but it's sealed in the sense that no more revelation is coming about this for you. This is all I'm going to put you through. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. People are going to read this, and they're going to run to and fro. People are going to comb over this book, and they're going to try to pull out all these different kinds of things. Jesus says that there are going to be people all the time throughout the rest of history that are going to say, now is the end, now is the end, now is the end. You need to prepare. You need to be ready. You need to dig a bunker. You need to come stockpile food. This is the end. That's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. She's the Antichrist. Like That kind of is going to go on forever for the rest of time. Many will run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. People will have all kinds of reasonings and rationale for why this is the end time and why these numbers add up to what. And you've noticed that I have tried to stay out of some of those conversations, not because they're not profitable, but because they can bog us down from missing the point that we rest in Jesus knowing he stands above every cycle of evil. Will we grow in knowledge or will we grow in wisdom? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. This picture we've seen of Jesus as, as a radiant heavenly being. Those who are wise will shine like him. Those who turn many to righteousness. Those who join with God in his mission shine like him. Will we grow in knowledge or will we grow in wisdom? Will we learn about these prophecies? Will we try to understand and will we start to point the finger at why the world is burning? Or will we grow in wisdom and say, I don't necessarily need to understand all of that to trust Jesus and invite you to do the same? Will you follow him? Will we grow in wisdom 
Or will we grow in knowledge? We'll rest in Jesus, knowing he stands above every cycle of evil. And there's two more scenes to close out this book, and I appreciate you for hanging with me. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Remember, he's at a river while all of this is happening. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters in the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering, and that when the shattering of power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So, once more, an angel turns to Jesus and says, How long? How long is it going to take for you to, to do all this? And Jesus makes a solemn oath here. He raises not only his right hand, he also raises his left hand and swears by him who lives forever that it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. Super vague. <laughs> like, that's not the kind of answer I was looking for. A time, times, and that, what is going on? Most scholars will agree that when we talk about a time, they mean a year. A time times, so one year, two years, and then half a time would be half a year. So we're looking at three and a half years. Time, times, and half of a time. Three and a half years. But as God has talked through the cycles of history, he always does it in sevens. And I'm not going to go back through the whole book to show you this. But he always goes through, these cycles seem to happen in some uh, denomination of sevens. So if we're looking at three and a half years, this is half of something that's happening. And the half of something that's happening happens in order to break the power of the people of God. We were looking for answers here. Like, you had an opportunity to clear this up for us, and you give us more questions? I told you last week, we'd walk away from these chapters with more questions than answers. And yet I hope that our questions lead us to faith, not to doubt. I don't have to understand to trust someone who does. This is why... I trust, I, uh, I, I trust Jesse with all of our money. Like, if I get a paycheck, she, she has. I don't even know what I make most of the time. I only know when I'm trying to apply for a mortgage and I have to figure all that out. It takes me a long time because I'm not good at math. I can't add things up. Um, they get stuck in my head. I have to work on paper. It takes a long, long, long time. So I just let Jesse do all the books in our family, and it works fine. I make the money. She tells me if I need to go make more. It works. I don't have to know how to add it up to trust the one who has it figured out. We don't have to know all the ins and outs of the details of how things are going to end in order to trust the one who wrote it down to begin with. And we rest in Jesus knowing he stands above every cycle of evil. There are times where the world is going to feel so dark, where the suffering is going to be so great, where we're going to see godly people suffer and die not of their own, like for no good reason whatsoever. And we're going to say, God, how long? How long are you going to let this go? He's going to say, I've got something I'm working on. It will make sense at the end. Will you trust me? Daniel has one more question, too, in verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Hallelujah! <laughs> I'm on the page with that. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. But none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel says, I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Actually, in, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew, as, as Daniel records this, he has four words. And if we were going to use four words to, to describe Daniel's, uh, Daniel's expression here, I think it would be, God, 
What's the point? You've told me that your people are going to suffer, that wickedness is going to abound. God, what's the point? If you're good, if you're in control, why are you letting the world burn down? God, what's the point? I'm broken over these things. Go your way, Daniel. Continue on with your life. Live it well. You, you realize, I, I don't know, this means a lot to me. This is a guy who's lived his whole life faithfully, who's, who's faithfully tried to point people back to Yahweh, to point people to God. And God shows up at the end of his life, at the end of 80 years, and says, yeah, they're not going to get it. It's going to get worse. Well, was my whole life for nothing? What have I been doing? Did you just waste all of this, God? No. Go your way. Finish your days well. Yeah, but they're not going to... I know. Trust me. Go your way. Um, We close our services together weekly on purpose. Go, therefore. Um, And I don't... I talk about it in January every year. Um, But go, therefore, sounds like a command, but it's not. There's only one command in the Great Commission, and the command is make disciples. It's the only imperative in in the Greek, in the Greek language. The only imperative is make disciples. Teaching, baptizing, going, they're they're all adjectives. So instead of go, therefore, the... Um, the, the way that I would translate it if I were doing it, and I'm not, and I'm not an expert by any means, but this is how I understand it. As you're going, make disciples. As you're living your life, as you're doing your thing, make disciples. Don't, don't hole up in a monastery in the desert and isolate yourself from the world as you're going, as you're living, as you're breathing, as you're going to work, as you're going to school, make disciples. And here at the end of Daniel's long life, God looks at him and says, go your way. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. There will be people that will be faithful. And maybe this might be the most encouragement that I can give you this morning. The wicked shall act wickedly. Don't be surprised. We can be heartbroken, we can grieve, we can lament, but we ought not be surprised that the wicked act wickedly. And we should not lose focus that many shall be faithful. Go your way. The way of the world is turmoil, but Jesus is our way through it. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. So will we rest in Jesus? Church, that's, that's the question for us every week. Will we rest in Jesus? And I, don't, I don't mean to imply that that means we get in the recliner and kick our, chair, our, our feet up. Not rest in the sense of there is no work to be done, but rest in the sense of my work only accomplishes that which he has set for me. I don't work to earn my way. I work because my way has been paid freely. Will we rest in Jesus, who stands above every cycle of wickedness and evil that this world could throw at us? Would you pray with me? Almighty God, most high Lord of heaven, Um, we have glimpsed things that we don't understand. We've come toe-to-toe with your, your, your knowledge, and um, we don't necessarily get it. But we're amazed that you can look at us, and you can look at the world, and you can be, still be moved to compassion. 
And you would still lay down your life for us that we might be made white and redeemed and cleansed. That we might walk in wisdom and shine radiant like you in a dark, dark, dark world. For those of us who have not yet chosen to trust you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd move in our heart, that your spirit would draw us to you, that we might come to you, say, I don't really know the words or how this is supposed to work, but I want to follow you. I want to rest. I want your peace. And I know that I haven't earned it. I know that I'm not good enough for it. But you've been so kind. You've been so patient. And you are the master that I want to serve. Would you strengthen us to make that decision? And for those of us who have walked with you for a long time, God, would you soften our heart as we see the wickedness in the world? God, we're not surprised, but Lord, would you help us to grieve and lament and to cry out and to long for your return? Would you loosen our grip on defective lifesavers? Would we not cling to our own knowledge or our own riches? Lord, would you help us to let those things go to cling to you? We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We'll take a few minutes and just reflect on how God's speaking this morning. If there is uh, there's something you need to do, a conversation you need to have, uh, send a text message or something, then this is a good time to do it. But we'll, we'll spend some time in prayer and reflection before we close together in singing. Thank mm-hmm. you.